Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights. Dueling questions with Mike Moynihan at Baseball Collector on YouTube and Golden Age of Cardboard is his show. I'll listen to it. It's one of the ones I like. It's very vintage, but that, that works for me. I like modern as well. But thanks, sponsors, Panini, Upper Deck, Tops, Heritage Auctions, Target and Scott Auctions, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Burbank Sports Cards, Compsy.com, Beckett Media, Beckett Grading, Beckett Authentication. So... Welcome to Dueling Questions with Mike Moynihan, baseball collector on YouTube. Mike, hit me with your first shot. Do you prefer vintage or modern? Vintage. Is that a trick question? It was not a trick question. You don't dislike modern stuff. I don't, I don't dislike modern, but again, modern, when I was running things in the company, modern is as difficult to define as vintage. It's not just anything that isn't vintage is modern. There's limbo areas, you know, period in there to things that are not really vintage, but they're not this year's cards either. So we looked at that, but I tend to go toward older and I realized I go for the years that I collected as well as the years that my dad collected. So it starts in 33. I don't do a whole lot with T cards. I do have some nice 19th century stuff, but it's mainly Gaudis and up. Perfect. And uh, the golden age of the fifties, I think is what I think. Like podcast is called the golden age of cards. I know. I know. <laughs> I think it truly is the golden age. Okay. My turn. Yes, sir. Um, if I wanted to incorporate some videos into my hobby initiatives, would I go to your videos for how to display cards? Would you direct me to take a sampling of your early issues are your latest issues or anything in between to try to get some examples of how best to do it? You've had over a thousand videos. If I wanted to learn from your experience, where would you direct me? Start now and work backwards would be the direction. But I still don't know that I found the idea of having a little stand where you can put a card and highlight a card. This was actually built for me. I had one custom built by another YouTuber and sent it to me. You got to have the angle right on that light and the, to avoid glare and all the things that you, and try different things. A lot of people do spotlights and then straight up and down and everybody's got their own setups because everybody's got unique situations where they're trying to have a camera and, a, and lighting and whatnot, but lots of light and start going backwards. And that's how you make it a card really look great. And I have a lot of room for improvement in that regard. That's what I'm taking away is that you're still a work in progress. You, you have never stop good values, but you're, you're continuing. Okay. What is your favorite baseball set of all time? 56 tops. First card I ever saw for one okay. thing. And I think it's artistic. I actually don't like horizontal cards in general, but I make an exception for that. And I think 56 is a, a, a more refined version than 55. And then 57 is more of a pure card. So I, I think 56 was really the sweet spot. And it just happened to be the first card I ever saw, the first card I ever bought. And it was the last of that era. The slightly bigger size. Right. It was the set that I was so interested in completing that I traded some of my dad's Gowdies, <laughs> which talk about needing a price guide. Well, there wasn't right. a price guide. I, I was pretty clueless. I wasn't clueless, but I, and I didn't horribly get taken advantage of, but if somebody says, hey, your cards are older, how about be two for one? Two for one should have been 10 for one, but right. uh, it's the statute of limitations. The guy I did that with is a, a very close friend now, so he, he could have burned me worse. And I, I was so excited to pick up those last few cards I needed for 56 tops. And this is almost 50 years ago. Okay, my turn again. What are your initials in terms of your financial professional 
experience. I'm a CFP, uh, certified financial planner. Okay. For the last 15 years, I've been a CFP, been in the industry as a financial planner for 25 okay. years. As a CFP, how does that influence your collecting? You're well organized, you're a planner, you, you say you're OCD, but there's actually something called OCPD, which is not as bad as OCD, which the D for uh, in is disorder. I don't think, right, it's right. Disordered, but you have a personality trait that leans that way. So it's almost so for my psycho babble, the CFP, how has that influenced your approach to collecting? I think significantly. And the more I actually think about that, the more I think it plays into how I am as a collector. I think as a planner for people's finances, you have to think long-term in the card world. I've always had the long game in mind. I've always thought, man, I don't have to buy this card today. If I'm at a show and I see a card, I don't have to buy it right now. I'm going to walk down the row and there's going to be another one. And and so it's taught me patience. It's taught me the long game. I describe myself in my business. When I talk to clients, I say, look, I'm the tortoise, not the hare. All right. I'm not looking for the latest, greatest, awesome stock or crypto or all this stuff. I'm not playing in that world. With me, you're going to get the tortoise. And I've read the fable. The tortoise ends up winning. I would call myself as a money manager, relatively boring. I find really good quality stuff and stick with it. Guess what? I do the same thing in the hobby. I find really good quality stuff and I stick with it. I think oh, there's so much translation there that I never really picked up on until relatively recently in the last year or so. As I talk with clients, I go, man, I say the same thing like that, like that on my videos. It's just hobby related. So the themes are incredibly common. That's good. I'm going to follow up on that on my next question, but your turn. Okay. So you're Dr. James Beckett, the Dr. James Beckett. You have no idea how much you influenced me as a youngster completely unbeknownst to you, that has to be a story that's been replicated literally hundreds and thousands of times over your career. When someone says, Dr. Beckett, thank you so much for what you did for me in the hobby, does that still make you feel proud of your accomplishments in your career, even today? Well, sure. But I did some wonderful things when it was me, myself, and I, but I did much greater and better things when I had an outstanding team. The first book was probably me burning a lot of midnight oil. And the second, third, fourth, I was always burning midnight oil. But over the years, I got more and more help. And we really blossomed when the magazines came out and the, the multiple sports and all that stuff. And it, it was just necessary that I delegate. But uh, the buck stopped here. And so I'll accept it on behalf of the team. But again, you can't say that that I had a relationship with all these people who got the magazine, but they had to put something into it in order to get something out of it. So it's not like I was spoon feeding people. We put out products and price guides that the people that got the most out of it had the long view, as you've said, and, and really jumped in with both feet. Then they got a lot out of it. And then they're going to come back around and say, hey, thank you. Because as we dug into it, you kept consistently providing information and you know publications that were helpful in the enjoyment of the hobby and in many cases, their personal enrichment which wasn't the number one goal, but certainly that's great too. As more people have gotten into it, the prices have gone up and we weren't setting the prices. We were trying to reflect the prices that were out there. So yeah, it was interesting every time, by the way, my favorite day of the month is when I got my Beckett baseball card monthly. <laughs> and as a kid, I didn't use the price guide a lot. I loved reading the articles, the hot list, all the stuff that you guys incorporated beyond just the prices, which when I used it as well to some degree, but reading about what was going on in the hobby was my biggest joy about your magazine. So all the con contributions that you made to that throughout the years. I made to that, we're hiring some people that were very talented in that way. And you 
you mentioned Mike Payne, but Pepper Hastings, Jay Johnson, some of the guys that led our editorial efforts, Al Muir and Dave Slipka actually did some of that stuff too. It's a great team. And I loved interacting with them, but there wasn't a lot of direction needed as long as they were staying on a positive tone and trying to blend the hobby with the love of the sport. Okay. My turn. Your turn. You mentioned that your approach in the CFP. What do you say to people that say, yeah, Mike, I, I, I want boring, but I also want an alternative asset class. And I think sports cards or baseball cards need to be in there, NFT or any kind of commodity, art. What do you refer them to? Do you say, hey, as long as you keep that to 10% of your portfolio, no problem, have fun with it. What's your advice in terms of the alternative asset aspect of sports cards and other kinds of things? The reality is the world looks at sports cards as an investment. Personally, I do not. I look at it as a hobby, something to be enjoyed and, and recreational. No doubt there's money in the hobby, just any commodity. Keep it to a reasonable percentage. Like you said, 10% is actually a very good number because that's at least enough to move the needle. But you could say that about real estate, owning rental homes and or owning company stock in your 401k. There's just risk there that you have to be aware of. I'm more risk conscious than I am return conscious. I want to make as much money as I can, but I can only control the risk. I can't control what the market's going to do, whether it's real estate or commodities, crypto stocks. So I can only control risk. And by limiting yourself, but I find that a lot of people, they buy what they know. Look, if it's something I can't understand, then I can't in good conscience invest your money in something I can't even understand. Bitcoin, for example, I understand a lot about it. I've read a lot about it. I want to understand it. The NFT world, I want to understand that. I still can't grasp why a 10 second clip of Luca hitting a three-pointer is worth 20,000 or whatever, some number. That makes zero sense to me logically. Therefore, I go, look, if you want to do that, great. Go knock yourself out. I'm just not going to help you do that. So that's been a line that I've just drawn in the sand and nobody fights back on that. They go, okay. When we were talking with your dad, if you don't know what you're doing, if you can't do it well, then don't do it. So you're going to refer it to somebody and say, hey, I can refer you to somebody else for that portion if you're insistent on that, or or you can self-manage that. Your turn. My turn. Uh, it's going to be an off the wall question, but I love visiting ballparks and cause I love the game and I know how much you love the game too. What are your maybe one or two favorite ballparks that you've visited? As befits a vintage guy, it's Wrigley Field and Fenway Park are pretty hard to beat. The old Yankee Stadium, anything that has great memories and long memories. Just, I guess I went to Forbes Field. I went to Three Rivers, PNC. Again, the new parks have a sameness to them. Although Camden, it was, and even the old Rangers Stadium was, and I'm not going back to the Turnpike Stadium because that really was not a great, that was interim. But yeah, I'd say Wrigley and Fenway would be the ones. Awesome. Imagine being a vintage collector and not having an appreciation of the roots of the game. Have you taken the tour at uh, Fenway? What do you mean the tour? Do like a tour during the day where you can go around and it's... I haven't done that, but I've roamed around a little bit, but it's like a cathedral or something. It is. It is. Um, Okay. Timing the market is considered to be... Not necessarily impossible, but difficult to do or replicable or consistently do in any kind of public markets. Okay. Why do people think they can do it with sports cards? And they think, oh, I'm just going to buy the dip. Or in day traders, what they really hate is a stagnant stock. They want to see buy the bump, a little bit of movement up. That means it's on the move. A little bit of movement down, maybe it's on the way down. Why would it be that people could time the market with sports cards when they can't time it with 
Apple or Amazon or Google or General Motors? The truth is they're naive. And what's been going on in the hobby the last year and a half to two years, the, the blow up that we've seen, there's been a lot of new people either coming back to the hobby or just new people, period, that have never been in the hobby. They don't know any different. We have the benefit of experience that they don't have. It's not a knock on them. It's just a reality. I, I love people coming into the hobby. I think if you come in and you're a collector mindset, and you, you just love the sport. And oh man, you discover this thing in sports cards. Then that is fantastic. I hope they stay around forever. My concern is these people that have not seen a down market that you and I have lived through multiple cycles of that. When I, this is true in my business too. I go, I've been through four recessions. I don't get that worked up about it anymore. I think you're going to see as these prices start to recess a little bit, which is very normal for any market. You have periods of peak and trough. And in fact, the, the faster it goes up, typically the faster it drops. It's the old rubber band theory. The, the further you pull the rubber band, the faster it snaps. I think we're going to see that in the sports card market. It's very normal and totally okay. If you have that long-term mentality, you shouldn't care a whole lot other than you never buy perfectly at the dip unless you're just lucky, like at the bottom. You have to go, I'm going to buy on the way down. Whatever car, I'm just going to keep buying. At some point, I might buy one card perfectly uh, if you're buying a series of cards for your collection. And those will eventually go back up. What's great is I don't think the cards, especially in the vintage world, are going to... We've seen a rise to a peak. I think the the new trough that's going to be set, the new low is going to be still higher than it was two years ago. Seems like you, it's not that they don't know better. They, it's not knowable. People that are saying, hey, trust me on this. This card is going up. You can't say that with the reliability. In an up market, you're going to be right a lot more than you're wrong. Don't you think that's a dangerous trend in the hobby? It's honestly. a dangerous trend in the hobby. Uh, and that, that's Even if you're a doomsayer, either way, people ought to study up and you may want to be a contrarian. There's different ways to make money, but we should be happy that cards are moving. Okay, Preferable they're moving up. But liquidity is the key thing. These alternative assets, not only are they more volatile, but the liquidity of these alternative assets can come into question. For sure. In in a downturn. Thanks, Mike. Check out uh, Mike on his uh, YouTube channel, Baseball Collector. And Mike, I'll see you at some of these shows. All right. Thanks, Dr. Beckett.